Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Or perhaps you want to turn in the Black Pew Bible to Hebrews chapter 12 on page 1009 this morning. And forgive me if at some point I say this evening, old habits die hard. Uh, This morning, we are continuing a study in the book of Hebrews that we have been in since about uh, August of last year. And so we're at the tail end of chapter 12. The book is about how Jesus is better. Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is better than the angels of God because he's the eternal God in the flesh. That's chapters 1 and 2. He's better than Moses who was the mediator of the old covenant and arguably one of the most influential and important people in the Old Testament. But he was just a servant in God's house. Jesus is the son over the house who builds the house. That's chapter 3. Jesus is better than Joshua, Moses' follower. Jesus is better than Aaron and the priests that God gave the Old Testament. Jesus is a better sacrifice. He offered himself once for all for the forgiveness of our sins. His sacrifice doesn't have to be repeated endlessly as the sacrifices of the old were. He's the final great high priest who offers the perfect sacrifice and he does it in the true temple of God and he gives us access with confidence into the very presence of God. And so we are to trust in him for that access. And we are to rest in him that the work necessary is accomplished. And we are to enjoy the fact that he is all that we need, all sufficient for our soul's care. And so we are to hold on to him as people. In this world, uh, we will face difficulty and trouble and trial. And the early hearers faced persecution and suffering and death. That may not be in all those ways our experience, but we are to remain faithful. We are to hold on, we are to persevere. And so that's where the book has gone in chapter 11 and 12. How do we respond to the good news of what Jesus is and has done? How do we respond to the gospel? Now that he's come, now that he's lived and obeyed, suffered, been crucified, died, buried, and raised from the dead and ascended over all things. How should we respond? We should respond in worship. And so let me invite you to give your attention to the Word of God from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, quote, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's look to him together in prayer. And we do bow before you, our Lord and our God. And we thank you that this is your word and not our word. And we pray that by this word, you would speak to our hearts and teach us and change us and correct us and have mercy upon us. Grow us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. man named Frederick Fox was a hat maker, and he was appointed in about the 1960s to be hat maker to the Queen of England. And before his first meeting with the Queen to fit her for the hats that he was going to make, he was told the protocol for meeting the Queen. Don't touch the Queen. Don't ask questions. And don't turn your back. You see, when you, when you have an audience with the Queen of England, and especially when you're one of her own subjects, you better know and follow the rules of engagement. You, you need to know what's acceptable. Practice before Her Majesty. Well, Fox completed the fitting, but then he had a problem. When it was time to depart, he says, I was rooted to the spot. I thought that if I walked backwards, I would fall over the furniture where the dogs lay. So there he stood, not daring to turn his back on her, not daring to give offense, stuck. But eventually a solution was found. Her majesty, spotting, he says, my dilemma, turned her back on me and asked a question of one of the others, giving me the opportunity to withdraw. Now, you may think, what's the fuss? Why stand on ceremony? But surely you have people in your life you seek to honor in ways appropriate to their dignity or their importance to you. Melinda and I were uh, horrified in the early days of our marriage at uh, our failure in this. When my parents came to visit, uh, we had a futon. And we had bought it cheap because we were poor. And the mattress was only a couple inches thick. It rested on hard planks. It had been advertised to us as both a couch and a bed. But neither of us had ever slept in it. And we didn't realize how uncomfortable it was. They had driven 900 plus miles to see us. They had honored us with their presence, graced us with their love, taken us out to eat with their generosity. And we put them in a bed I wouldn't now sleep my youngest child on. I think, if I'm not mistaken, my parents stayed in a hotel for every visit after that. The futon, as it happens, was not 
appropriate to their dignity nor to their importance in our lives, let alone their love and generosity. And besides, Dad was already 67 years old or so when he came to visit. Not the best place for them to sleep. Well, what's the appropriate response for us to the dignity and importance, to the love and generosity of the God who died for us that we might live with him forever? Three things from this passage. And they're all commands. You'll see them in verse 25. Don't refuse him. See to it that you do not refuse him. Verse 25. End of verse 28, but this is verses 26 through 28. Give thanks to him or be grateful to him. And then verses 28 and 29, revere him or, or worship him with reverence and awe. And those are the three things I want to highlight as we respond to God. In the first place, don't refuse God because he is speaking to you in his son. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Now, who's doing the speaking? He's not talking about himself as the writer or the preacher or myself as a preacher. He's talking about God speaking. As we saw last week, forgive me if you weren't here, at Mount Sinai, the Israelites heard the voice of God speaking and they were terrified. This is on the mountain of God when the Ten Commandments, the law of God is given. And God is on display in all of his holiness. And they were terrified. His perfect law commanded them. And in hearing it, their hearts condemned them. And they knew they had kept its precepts. And they knew that they couldn't bear its penalties for having broken it. And they begged that God would not speak to them anymore. And he gave them Moses to be a mediator. In fact, they actually said, Moses, you go up and talk to God. Let God not talk to us. But, he says, we have come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. And in verse 24, in coming to Mount Zion, we have come to Jesus. We've come to the mediator of the new covenant. And we have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have come not to the blood of Abel, which cried for justice against his brother who broke the law and murdered his brother but we have come to the blood of jesus which cries out for mercy his blood speaks in other words and god speaks through him jesus kept the demands of the law he suffered the penalty of the broken law and he cried out on the cross father forgive them his blood speaks a better word see to it the writer says that you don't refuse him who speaks and so i just ask you the question are you listening are you paying attention why would you not listen to the god of the cross now god is earnest about this he's serious about this we must listen to him notice how the language goes on at the end of verse 25 for he says if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. His argument here is from the lesser to the greater. There's this intensification, in other words, of seriousness now that Jesus has come. The the voice of the gospel to us, of grace. 
means not that there's less accountability to God, but that there's more accountability to God. It's, it's not, you know, now that Jesus is here, we know that God is merciful, so we can just assume and presume upon his leniency and disregard what he says to us. No, not at all. He says that the blessings and the curses of God are both greater under the gospel than they were under the time of the giving of the law. And he says, so if the breakers of the law did not go unpunished for rejecting the God who was speaking to them, certainly those who despise the gospel cannot expect to go unpunished. Ask yourself, what should I expect if I refuse and reject the God of grace? What should I expect? Jesus told a story about a man who planted a vineyard. And he let it out to tenants. And then he went into another country for a long while, Jesus says. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so the owner of this vineyard, vineyard sent another tenant. But they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And Jesus says he sent yet a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance can be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And Jesus asked this question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What do you think? What do you think? Jesus answers it. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. God in his grace and kindness has extended to each of us an invitation to have all of our sins forgiven in Jesus. And to have everlasting life with Jesus in heaven through the finished work of Jesus and not on the merits of our own work. This is the greatest invitation in all the world. And since the gospel is the greatest privilege imaginable, to refuse it is then the greatest sin imaginable. And if you reject the offer of salvation, to whom will you turn to find salvation? If However, you receive him as your savior, then you are safe, then you are welcome. But refuse him, and where will you go for safety? And so he says, listen, Jesus went to the cross for your safety. Don't refuse him who is speaking to you. And then he says this about the way we should respond. Be grateful. Be grateful because you are receiving a kingdom that endures. Verses 26 to 28, at the end of verse 8, he gets to his punchline. Let us be grateful for what? For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It endures. Now, 
You won't be grateful if you don't see its security and if you don't receive it as a gift. What do I mean by that? Well, in the first place, you need to see its security, its permanence, its indestructibility. What's he talking about when he mentions in in these verses uh, about shaking the earth and removing things that are shaken? Well, in verse 26, he's quoting the Old Testament prophet Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, which says this, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now, some say that this is fulfilled primarily in the future, in the return of Christ. And for example, in Revelation chapter 6, when it says that the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? There's an earthquake. There's a shaking. And whether you're rich or poor, whether you're a general and mighty in power or the lowliest of all, in that day, no king will stand before the king of kings. And no kingdom will last but his kingdom and the people who belong to it. Others, however, see this fulfilled in the ongoing rise and fall of empires from the time of the first coming of Jesus through to the time of the second coming. For throughout that period, leaders come and go. Nations rise and fall. The great nations and empires and rulers and dictators are shaken. And we living in our own generation sometimes join in the fear of others. The fear when nations are being sifted. But we need not fear, for we have received, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It is not a kingdom of this world. It is a kingdom not of this world. And so as we live in the midst of the shaking out of things here and now, we've got to take to heart. That truth that Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way in Daniel chapter 4, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest, lowliest, lowliest of men. That's why David tells us in Psalm 46, do not put your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Instead, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Our hope is in a kingdom that is not of this world. The kingdoms of this world will lie shattered at the feet of the empire of Jesus. And nations and peoples that resist him here and now and deny him and defy him here and now do not long last in this world and will not survive the last day 
All that is true. God will shake the kingdoms of this world in the last day. God does shake the kingdoms of this world in the here and now. But he also shook things up in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the events that followed that. And and some of the older commentators looking at a passage like this actually go back to that event as the reference for what Haggai is looking forward to. Why do I say that? Because the prophecy in Haggai, which he's quoting, is about the temple. And in that prophecy, if you were to turn to Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, we've already read verse 6, and at verse 7 it says, And I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now what happened to that earthly temple of God? It was, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, within a few short decades, destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70 when they came in and they wiped out Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the Old Testament priesthood. They ended the sacrifices. And none of that has been able to continue ever since, even to this day. But that's okay, the writer of Hebrews is saying. That's okay, the writer of Haggai is saying. Because Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice that takes away sins. You don't need the Old Testament priest offering time and again those old sacrifices. Jesus is the true temple of God where God and man meet. And the glory of Jesus as the meeting place of God is far superior to that little building in Jerusalem in Haggai's day and even in Jesus' own day. His glory is greater than the earthly shadows that but promise his own coming. And God removed that earthly priesthood and those sacrifices in that temple and, he, and God ushered in a new era in Jesus. And he brings the nations into his unshakable house. And so it is that his own people who trust in Jesus are themselves called the temple of God. We are the temple of his Holy Spirit. The old is shaken out so that the new may be established and filled permanently and securely with people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. When that kingdom comes into your life, When you become a part of it, you are safe. It's permanent. And you are a citizen. Your name is enrolled in its book, as we saw last week. You can be grateful for that. It's not in doubt. But if you think you're working to get it instead of receiving it as a gift, then you won't be grateful. Listen, if you're working to attain it, you you might tell yourself God will reward your efforts, but you will remain uncertain until the last day that he will, that you did enough. And in the meantime, you'll either grow arrogant, thinking you have done enough, or you'll grow resentful because he expects so much of you that you can't and you don't and you simply won't do. 
So that religion that twists the gospel into being what you do for him instead of what he does for you inevitably flatters the human heart so that we boast in ourselves or it shatters the human heart and we are plunged into despair. But the gospel isn't about what you do for him. It is about what he does and has done for you. And we receive it as a gift. This is why he says, let us be grateful. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do you see? Only a secure kingdom that you get as a gift can make you truly grateful. Otherwise, you're just puffed up with your own pride and self-centered righteousness. Or some of you are about to just kick this thing out the door and you're done with Jesus because it's too hard trying to work to attain this kingdom. But if you receive that which is a gift and it lasts, you can be grateful. Does your heart boast in Jesus? Can you, do you give thanks to him? That's the right response. And notice the last way to respond. It is, end of verse 28 and 29, it is to be reverent in our worship and service of him. Because our God is a consuming fire. Notice that language. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. When we see God as he truly is, we grow more in awe of him, not less. More impressed by him, not less. Look, when Peter was in the boat with Jesus, the carpenter's son filled the fisherman's empty nets with fish. And Peter, what did he do? He had worked all night. He was weary. He was tired. They hadn't caught anything. What did he do when Jesus said, Jesus the rabbi, Jesus the teacher, Jesus the carpenter's son said, throw your nets in the water. You catch some fish. And the fish were so much, it was overflowing and breaking the nets. Peter fell at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why? He saw the glory of the Lord and he knew himself by contrast. This is what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6. We talked about this in the Intro to Redeemer class just recently. When Isaiah saw or caught sight of the Lord high and lifted up, seated on a throne, and even the train of his robe filled the temple, the angels were covering their eyes and covering their feet, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The whole earth is full of his glory. What did Isaiah say? He immediately responds, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see what we're saying? That the closer you are drawn to God, God, the the greater you sense the distinction between His holiness and yours, His majesty and yours, between His perfection and your failures. You say with Peter and Isaiah, I know I have no claim on your presence, Lord. I'm not worthy to be before your face, Lord. Have mercy upon me, Lord. And Peter 
received mercy. And Isaiah likewise. Have you enjoyed the grace of that awesome experience? Isaiah did. An angel took a coal from the altar of fire and touched his lips. And it purified his lips. He was, he was pardoned and he was cleansed of his iniquity. The writer here in Hebrews says this. Let us worship God with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. That means, in the first place, the God he speaks of in the new is the same as the God of the old. He's just describing God in the terms with which he described him on Mount Sinai. God hasn't changed, but our sight of the grace of God is fuller because the Savior that was once promised has come in fulfillment. But this is the same God. And so God, as a consuming fire, either means death to his enemies or it means cleansing for his people. The God of grace is the God of Mount Sinai, the God of the burning bush for which Moses took off his shoes, and the God of whole burnt offerings on an altar of wood. Treat him flippantly, refuse his son, scorn his grace, and fire will come out from the altar and consume you, as it did to the rebellious sons of Aaron. There is no escape from that fire. But that same altar of fire burns the sacrifice of atonement by which we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. So those who know that atonement accomplished by Jesus are called not to worship him flippantly and trivially, but reverently and with awe. Not in the fear of judgment, Jesus has taken it away, but with the reverence of children to a holy father who has taken away our judgment in the gift of his own beloved son who bore our hell upon the cross to make us his children. And so all of our worship ought to be reverent and awe. It ought to be filled with delight in his grace. And we ought to marvel at his kindness. Whatever the style of our worship is, that doesn't matter so much. What's the heart? What's going on with us? It should be filled with awe as we declare his glory. That it is so often not in our experience and from our hearts. Shows we are not seeing him clearly. Perhaps we are too enamored with ourselves and not enough with him. Perhaps we've come to worship to enjoy ourselves and not give him the glory. Perhaps we expect from worship to be entertained by others, but not to meet with the living God. And that would be a tragedy for us and unworthy of his glory and grace. The irony, of course, is that for those of us, if you are like me, who are so far in their hearts from the gratitude, reverence, and awe that he is worthy of, the hope for us is to be found in that same God and his grace. C.S. Lewis, I think, nicely captures this in Chronicles of Narnia when a young girl, some of you know this story, named Jill, 
comes upon a stream of water. She's been lost and she's dying of thirst. But as she comes forward to drink, she notices this, this giant majestic lion at the bank of the river. And this is Aslan who stands for the Lord of glory. And Jill spots him and stops. She's fearful. The lion invites her. If you're thirsty, you may drink. She hesitates. She's conflicted. Are you thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Jill said. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Do you eat girls? She asked fearfully. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream said the lion. If you and I are going to, to satisfy the thirst for our souls to be filled with the waters of eternal life, then we're going to have to deal with a God like this. The God who is. Who will not move out of our way. God who won't become more palatable or chummy. A God who never denies his own holy, righteous, just character as the God of awesome power and might, the God who is a consuming fire, who at the same time consumed his son in the fire of his wrath upon the cross, that we might be free. He is the Savior, the God of majesty and mercy, who shakes the heavens and the earth and gives all to those who trust his son he gives them a kingdom that cannot be shaken therefore let us not refuse him but receive him and worship him with gratitude and respect let's pray oh to grace how Great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let your grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take our hearts. Take and seal them for your courts above. We ask that you would have mercy upon us and show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's